Good morning. A pleasure, pleasure to be with you in your fine city and fine congregation and grateful for Steve being willing to, to share the pulpit. And grateful for my, uh, my good and longtime friend, Aldo Clausen, who, uh, you, if this goes really badly, you can blame him. <laughs> he has nothing to say, which is, this is the first. Yeah, they, well, they do anyway, he says. They always blame me anyway. Uh, if you have uh, a copy of the scriptures handy, hard copy or on your phone or however you access the scriptures, turn to the book of Isaiah, please. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to read the first eight verses. Hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were, were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> like, like many of us these days, I, uh, I have a lot of meetings by Zoom. And if you have been afflicted with Zoom meetings yourself or Zoom conversations, you probably had a Similar experience where you, you meet people uh, by Zoom, people you have never seen or met, interacted with face-to-face, -face, and after you have lots of meetings, lots of conversations with them, you get to meet them for the very first time, and you're surprised at what they actually look like. Say, oh, wow, you're a lot bigger than I thought you were on Zoom. Or a lot of people, I think they, they meet me after months of Zoom conversations and say, yeah, you're much smaller than I thought you were. If you, if you ask any random collection of people about their conceptions of God, you're going to get a wide array of answers. Well, God is like a big ogre who's, who's always trying to find something wrong with me. Or some will say, well, God is just like, a, like an amplification of my parents. Or maybe God is like an amplification of my, my grandparents who just kind of wink at everything and let me get away with anything. 
our, uh, one of our sons shakes his head these days because when he brings uh, our grandkids over to our house, he says, this is just the anything goes place. <laughs> and I say, you bet it is. You know, for some people, you ask, what is your conception of God? And God for them will be like a, a cosmic vendor who uh, just kind of gives you what you need as long as you put the right amount of coins in the, in the machine. Or, or maybe a, a vendor with whom you always have to barter to get what you need. Uh, you know, and for some, the, their, their image of God, their conception of God is like the, uh, the grand genie in the sky. Uh, who's there to grant wishes on command. Well, we, every one of us live in light of who we conceive God to be, who we think God is. Because our image of God, our conception of God, shapes the values by which we make every decision in life. Our image of God, our conception of God, shapes the values by which we make every decision in life. Because it determines what we think is ultimately true and what is ultimately worthwhile. And that reflects who we think is the authority in our lives. What we give greatest value to is what we give authority in our lives. That guides our decisions. It guides all of our choices. And that, that's true for all people. Not just those who would name the name of Jesus or those who would even use the word God. But everybody, everybody lives by what they think is ultimately real and ultimately important. Mid-20th century pastor in Chicago, A.W. Tozer, once said that whatever comes to mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Whatever comes to mind when we think of God, that is the most important thing about us. Now, that's, that's tough on us to realize that, that God may be different than what we thought. And that's true even for followers of Jesus. God may be different than what we thought. That's, uh, that's tough. I mean, that often happens when, uh, with, like with parents, when children discover that we are mortal. Uh, my sons used to uh, take great delight in watching me dunk a basketball. Now, what they did not know at the time is that I had lowered the rim to eight feet because <laughs> you were wondering, how does this guy dunk a basketball? Uh, well, when, when they, 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 they were impressed and um, in awe of me dunking a basketball on that rim, and, and then when they realized it was an eight-foot rim, they realized I was not immortal. And, uh, and, and, and my sons still do love me, but they have, they have let me know how sobering it was to them when they realized that their dad was really no big deal. <laughs> With God, it can work the other way around. We can have very small conceptions of God, very manageable, very domesticated, very, um, very safe conceptions of God. And then when we see God as God really is, um, it can really set us back on our heels. Well, what is it that happens to us when we get 
a true, up-close view of God. What happens to us when that happens to us? We've gotten a window into this already in this text from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived about, best we can tell, 2,700 years ago. And he recorded in his, in his book a very long vision in which God spoke to the, uh, the kingdom of Judah, which was, which, which was made up of twelve or 10 of the 12 tribes of the overall nation of Israel. And, and as a nation, they had lost their way. They had lost the path. And right out of the gate, God says to them through Isaiah <clears throat> that even an ox knows its master and a donkey knows its master's stable, but they didn't know or understand God or God's ways, and they were his people. They had rejected God. They were corrupt, they, and they were suffering for it. And God was calling them back, calling them back. And so this, this king, Uzziah, he, he reigned over the kingdom of Judah for over 50 years and died about 739 B.C., and he's sort of the foil. If you're into literature, he's the foil in this account. Uh, Uzziah was a powerful man, and he did a lot of good. Frankly, we know from history, he did, he did many good things. But his reign and his life ended very poorly, very tragically. You know, in, in those days, monarchs actually had power. They were not just representative heads, you know, like the, uh, the, the king of England, who has uh, a, a lot of wealth, but he can't actually do a lot. Um, and, and in those days, because monarchs had tremendous power, they were, they were understood as being almost larger than life. And people often uh, saw them as, as godlike. But when Uzziah's life and his reign ended, he ended with leprosy. He died of leprosy, which if you know anything about that disease, it is one of the most debilitating and corrosive and tragic diseases that we know. And it was in that context, that year that King Uzziah died, when this powerful man who did so much good and was almost godlike to so many people in Judah, the year that he died, all kinds of things were changing. And it was then that God gave uh, the prophet Isaiah this compelling, this vivid, this captivating vision of who the God really is from whom Judah had walked away. And that vision changed Isaiah forever. And that's true of us as well, because all deep and significant and truthful change in our lives begins with a clear and vivid image of who God really is. All deep and significant change in our lives begins with a clear vision of who God really is, who God really is. We see in this vision that these beings called seraphs, these, these angel, angelic-like figures, they, they were in God's immediate presence. And being that close to God, they covered their faces. And they covered their feet. They covered their faces, they covered their eyes, which, which seems to, to symbolize that to, to, even to look upon the glory of God is more than a created being can, can withstand and survive. They covered their feet because 
in Scripture, feet seem often to uh, symbolize our, our, our frailty. These ancient monarchs in, in those days uh, customarily would, um, would show off their authority with their robes. So the longer and the larger a king's robe was, that was, that was like a, a statement to the world of the amount of authority, the amount of regency that a monarch had. And so when in this vision God shows himself with angels who can only be in his presence by covering their eyes and their feet, and his robe filled the entire temple, it, was, it, it would be as if the, the, a king were here and his robe of royalty extended from here all the way to the door, a robe that covered the entire floor. And, and that's not a vision of God that's just a projection of ourselves, an amplification of ourselves or our parents or our grandparents. That's a vision of God that has no dimensions that we can take in. That's a, that's a vision of God that is not domesticated or manageable or even safe. Many of you, I imagine, <coughs> are, pardon me, <coughs> are familiar with um, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and how, uh, I think it's uh, Mrs. Beaver, is it? <laughs> um, is, is, is hearing a description of this lion, Aslan, and she says, is he safe? It's Lucy, the little girl, Lucy, asking Mrs. Beaver. And Mrs. Beaver says, safe? Oh, no, my dear. He is not safe. But he is good. And, and, and so this image of God, this conception of God that the prophet Isaiah gets is, is a conception that shows that this God is the source of all beauty and all goodness and everything that is right in the world. And so the seraphs just de declare, I can imagine in deafening voices, holy, holy, holy. In other words, it, it, this God is totally other and pure beyond our imagination. We can't even take him. We have no parallel. This is not a safe, domesticated, small, manageable deity. Just imagine this, that you and I are created to be in intimate relationship with that God. A God who is not like us. A God who is not just a projection of ourselves and what we want God to be. A God who is not kind of created in our image, but we are created in His image so that we can be in relationship with Him. That's, that's stunning, is it not? That... That takes God out of, the, out of the realm of the safe and the manageable and even the predictable and gives us a God whose goodness and whose beauty and whose power and whose authority is more than the dimensions of our mind can fit. Uh, I, I, grew up <coughs> in, uh, I grew up in Texas, and you'll have to forgive me for that, I know. Um, but as part of that, I grew up a, just a really avid 
Dallas Cowboys fan. Now, I've since kind of altered some of those loyalties, but that was, um, that was the meaning of life as a young man. And I, I still remember vividly when the Cowboys won their very first Super Bowl in 1971. And all of a sudden, life was right again <laughs> because it was not the Packers. <clears throat> but one of my heroes on that, <clears throat> that old Dallas Cowboys squad was their, their famous defensive tackle, Bob Lilly. And I idolized Bob Lilly, number 75. Thank you. Appreciate <clears> that. <throat> and I had, uh, I had pictures of Bob Lilly, and I'd seen Bob Lilly on TV. But after the Cowboys won their first Super Bowl, one of the local car dealerships brought Bob Lilly in uh, for a promotion to, to you know, rustle up business. And my dad took me to the car dealership to meet Bob Lilly. <laughs> and, and no picture that I had ever seen could do justice to what was standing in front of me. It, it, was, uh, <clears throat> it was staggering. Because you know, those pictures can be safe, they can be benign, until reality hits us. And that's what Isaiah, by, by extension through the centuries, would have happened to each of us. No two-dimensional picture, no safe description that we can give to God can ever change our lives or can ever capture the reality of what stands before us when we see the living God. And that's why Isaiah's response kind of cuts a channel for us. One Old Testament scholar translates his response this way, it's all over, I'm doomed. The, the response we have in the text is, woe, woe is me, I am ruined. We, when we see ourselves in light of who God really is, that can have a withering effect on us. That, have a, that can have a bracing, jarring effect on us. We start to see things about ourselves that maybe we've, we've refused to see or don't want to see or we just always habitually turn a blind eye to. It's not convenient. It's not fun. It's, 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 it's uncomfortable but we see ourselves as we really are. There's no place to hide. And Isaiah says, he says, I, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Now that doesn't merely mean that maybe he said bad words now and then. This is most likely referring to their worship, that their worship as the people of God had been so diluted and distorted and self-serving that it was unclean. I don't even know how to worship the Lord appropriately. But it, but it can also refer to the condition of their heart, their inner person. And so to see God truly is, is exposing, it's unnerving to us. You, you see, somebody, see somebody come out of a place that you, you never expected them, and it it can set you back. I remember one of my, uh, I've probably given too many stories about my sons, but um, I remember when one of, one of our sons was um, maybe in junior high, 
I, I walked down the basement stairs in our house and the lights were all off. So of course nobody was down there, but I walked down into this totally dark basement and I got to the bottom of the stairs and for some reason he was down there and walked up to me at the bottom of the stairs just as I got into that totally dark room and he just appears out of the darkness. And I aged about five years <laughs> in that 10 seconds as I literally, I did not even have enough breath in me to yell. I just fell back on the stairs and sat down. Um, God, seeing God truly forces us to see ourselves truly. And that's something that probably every one of us, uh, we get squeamish at that. But we have to stop our games and illusions. Really, you know, when we realize that God is, God is not my grandpa and God is not my genie that I can manipulate. But it also gives us the capacity to see God's beauty and God's glory in a way that will literally change our lives. Now, I, I need to say that when, when Isaiah has such evocative response to God, oh, I, woe is me, I am doomed, I am undone, I am unclean, that is not there to dehumanize us. That is not there to, to crush our sense of self-worth or our sense of self-esteem. That is not there to take away any sense of dignity we have. Because the backdrop of all that is the dignity and the worth that God has given us. In other words, there would be no tragic sense of being ruined and undone if Isaiah did not know that he was made for more. And that all of God's people, all people are made for more. That's what it means in, in the book of Genesis when it says God created them in His image. God created human persons with a very unique dignity and worth and glory about them and purpose to their lives that is true of no other creature God created. That's the backdrop against which we see how far we've fallen and we sense how tragic that is. So the question it really exposes to us is, when, when will we learn? When, when will we stop the madness of thinking that we can get this all right by ourselves? Isaiah saw his true condition. He saw his people's true condition because he saw God as the one over all other powers, the source of all true goodness and beauty. And he realized how helpless, how indefensible, how empty-handed he was. And that is the spot, is it not, that we want to avoid and deny at all costs. How empty-handed, how defenseless, how helpless we are. And again, that's why this vision is not intended to, to pulverize us or to beat us down. It's intended to give us life. Because the gospel is right there. And that's what changes us. Now, the word gospel is not used here, but we see the gospel all throughout this response. Because God takes the initiative to heal. The seraph gets a coal from the altar. 
The altar, we know, is where atonement for sin was made. And we know something about fire, don't we? Fire can both kill us, and fire can also kill bacteria. Fire can kill us, but fire can kill the things that kill us. The seraph gets a, a coal from the altar, and he, and he did for Isaiah what Isaiah could not do for himself. In grace, unilaterally, God takes the initiative and cleanses his sin. Makes his uncleanness clean. And so in, in God's, God's grace, God's unfiltered, vivid presence and mercy will unravel us and begin to heal us. Because we're seen and we're loved and we're forgiven and we're made able to live in God's presence and participate in God's work. One Old Testament scholar, John Golden Gay, puts it this way, that merciful grace belongs as much to the essence of God's holiness as justice and purity. Merciful grace are just as much a part of God's holiness as justice and purity. And grace only means anything when we see God truly and when we see ourselves truly. Grace only means anything when we see God as God truly is and see ourselves as we truly are. Otherwise, grace is just politeness and niceness. Just politeness and niceness. So again, all, all deep, significant, true change in our lives begins with a clear vision of who God really is. And that's what happened to this prophet. He, and he was not merely given a clean slate before God. It, it, God did not just say, okay, you're all clean, it's all good now, go about your business. No, he was also given a new start and a new purpose when God says to him, after cleansing him, who'll go for us? Who's, who's going to be my ambassador? Who's going to be my messenger to this people? And after what Isaiah had experienced, seeing God for who God really was, and experiencing the cleansing and the hope and the love and the grace and the mercy, all he can say like a, like a first grader on the playground is, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. Now the job that God had for Isaiah was not rewarding. The message Isaiah was given was not popular and it was not well received. And so, uh, so when God called Isaiah into this new ministry, he was not calling Isaiah into his vocational sweet spot. God told him ahead of time what was going to happen. And what would make a person be willing to do that? To go into an ill-fated mission from God, knowing it was going to go very badly. What would make a person do that? And here, this breathtaking vision of God that was given to this ancient prophet in the, in the Middle East jumps through the screen and, and it becomes like a 3D hologram in our lives. That's what would make a person have that kind of nerve to go into an ill-fated mission because he had seen the Lord and had experienced the mercy and the grace and the life that only that God can give. That poses to every one of us the question, questions, do you really want change in your life? 
And do you really want to be an instrument of God in this world? Do you want to be an instrument of grace and goodness and wholeness and restoration and transformation in somebody else's life? Here's where it starts. Start by seeing the clearest, most truthful picture of God you can see. Not the God you want God to be. Not the God maybe you've tried to invent God to be. Not that safe, benign God who's always going to tell us what we want to hear. But let God be God on God's own terms. Let God be God on God's own terms. Tell us what we need to hear. Be willing to see ourselves in the light of who we really are. No games, no running, no hiding. And then receive the life and the dignity and the worth and the cleansing that only that God can give us. Receive that. And then let God guide you into serving. Because grace is at the core of all of that. What this vision of God does for us, this vision of God that Isaiah recorded and then offers to us, it tells us something about what grace really is. The thickness, the density of grace. The overwhelming, breathtaking power of grace. The life-giving capacity of grace that will breathe new life and new breath into dead lungs and give hope where hope had evaporated and give worth where worth had dissipated. What's your image of God? What's your conception of God? Is it big enough? Is it distorted? What, what has shaped your image of God? Bad experiences you've had? Our culture? And then what happens to us when we get a true view of who God really is and realize that we are in God's presence and that we've been cleansed and touched so that we can stand in His presence and interact with Him? What happens is not predictable. What happens is not just a manageable spiritual feeling or any kind of superficial change. What happens might scare us. Might tell us some things we don't want to hear. Might tell us some things that are more deeply true about God and about ourselves and about life. But that's the reality that positions us to experience that life-transforming, life-giving grace. And that, friends, you know this, is what the Scripture calls gospel. That, friends, you know this, is what the Scripture calls grace. And if we can trust that and trustingly ask God for that vision of Himself, what will happen can never be scripted in advance but it will be the story we will never regret. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful for you and who you are and how you have chosen out of your sheer grace and love and mercy
to reveal yourself to us and to chase us down when we are wayward and to, to cleanse us from sin even when we try to wiggle out from underneath it and to give us life and meaning and purpose and calling that only can come from you. We're grateful for your Spirit's presence with us to accompany us and empower us and preserve us through all of that. We pray that today, in whatever way that is needed, you would give to each of us a fresh and compelling and truthful vision of who you are and cleanse us and call us and empower us forward. In Jesus' name, amen.